So, I, uh, we thought as a church today that uh, it being Mother's Day, that, uh, that we would have uh, me speak as just an expert on mothers. So, what I've done is, with extensive research, uh, maybe you guys can put the slide up from the back that is my 18 characteristics of a phenomenal mother. Um, uh, and then what I would like to do is compare my mother to my mother-in-law, uh, score them against these 18 characteristics, and then go on to add my wife and my nine girls, uh, eight of which are now mothers. And uh, i just give you my, I thought it would be encouraging to moms in general this morning to do that. But uh, I suggested, actually, the way this worked is, um, coming into church this morning, my dear wife, sitting beside me in the car, asked me what I'm going to be speaking about. So that's exactly how I answered her. And uh, as a result, I have a sore arm. So we will probably do something else instead. The best way to me to celebrate mothers is through stories. As we get to Mother's Day every year, what I think we end up doing, what I think is the most meaningful part of the celebration of moms is storytelling. What's funny in our family, and I'm not sure if it is also in yours, but is that when our kids start reminiscing, we can't even remember half the stories that they're telling. And they're going on at great lengths about where they were that day and what actually happened and so on, and it's kind of vague to us. Maybe we sort of remember the event, but certainly the details are often clearer in the children's minds than they actually are in the parents' minds. And, but it's good for a mother's soul to hear some of those. So I would just encourage you today to tell stories to your mom, uh, to any mom figure in your life, um, because it's, it's good. What I'm going to do today is look at an obscure story in the Bible about a phenomenal mom. And that is in 2 Kings chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible, you can go to 2 Kings, or if you want to find it on your phone, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. In this particular pew Bible, it is page 310. So back in the Old Testament, you will find this story. And I'm just going to read through it a couple of verses at a time and, uh, and talk about it. And I think we'll draw some uh, lessons out of this story. You see, we are told over in the New Testament that the things that were written before or long time ago were actually written to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So that really explains, that's from Romans 15, and that really explains to us why the Spirit of God directed that in our Bibles would be this story written about 2,800 years ago about a woman whom we don't, for whom we don't even know her name. But we learn a great deal about this woman, and it's told very succinctly in this story. So, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. One day, Elisha, who was a prophet, went to the town of Shunem. 
A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I am sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. In two short paragraphs, we really get the lay of the land here. Let me just fill in a few details. This town of Shunem is just north of Samaria. It is just southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a very small community. It is mentioned a few times in the Bible. It was um, probably the one that uh, you, would, you might remember, if you've read the Old Testament, is there was a time when Saul was at war, the first king of Israel, and the enemies actually, um, they set up their battle lines or their um, army uh, near, uh, near that town. And the army of Saul was stationed on Gilboa. So there was this actually these armies facing each other and they could be seen across a valley. So that gives you kind of the lay of the land. So it's a regular little town. And we can pretty much place where it is today. The story takes place around 850 BC, and at that time, the good kings, not all the good kings, but the, the, like King David, this was after him. So this was at a time when there were other kings, and the nation of Israel had been divided into, into two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and then the ten tribes that were still referred to as Israel. And it was a time of a lot of idolatry and rebellion and not every so often someone would stand out as a person of faith. But it wasn't a really great time in the, uh, in the history of Israel. So this woman in the story, we find a few things about her. We find out that she was wealthy. And we see some other characteristics of her. She was hospitable. She was very smart, very discerning. They had no children. They seem to have a fairly healthy marriage. You'll see a couple of clues that uh, the husband was pretty typical of a husband. We'll, uh, we'll get there. Um, I noticed, um, where is, is she here? She's still here? Sunday school. Sunday school, okay. Because she's clearly married now. Because if you watch a music, somebody leading, okay, they will do f like vague signs with their hands and it's telling the musicians um, what to do. But now that she's married, she knows, like guys, you gotta be, spell it out. Like you can't be vague. So, so if you notice when she needed to redo, when she wanted us to redo a course again, like she was going like this because there were just two guys up here and they would not get it otherwise. So I just, I thought that was good. But this, this marriage is healthy and it's, there's just good, and we'll, we'll see a few of those as we go. Notice also, in the little introduction, um, the simplicity 
of what Elisha, as the man of God, needed. And she got him. She had figured out that he was actually a guy that just needed a bed, a lamp, a table, a chair. That was it, in a small room. That's pretty interesting. For those of us that seek to serve the Lord in our lives, there's a challenge here in this story to keep it simple. If we are going to be focused on the things of God, we want to keep our lives decluttered. And Elisha had a pattern of simplicity in his life. Okay, let's look at some more of the story. So one day Elisha, verse 11, returns to Shunem. He went up to his upper room to rest. This is this little room that they had built for him, being very hospitable as a couple, having this little room that he could go to whenever he needed it. He said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem that I want to speak to her. When she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied, my family takes good care of me. Later, Elisha asks Gehazi, that you noticed up above is his servant, what can we do for her? Gehazi replies, she doesn't have a son and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. When the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried. O man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at that time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. Wouldn't we all love the story to end right here? And they lived happily ever after. I I marvel sometimes. I'm not cynical, okay? Don't, don't, Don't even accuse me of that. That would be terrible. But when I see a baby shower, I sometimes look at this celebration going on, and I think about the crying nights and the sicknesses and the, you know, all this stuff that is ahead. And I'm thinking... They are crazy to be celebrating. But that's what we do. So if we could just stop this story right here, it would be a beautiful story, and I could end, and it would be, you know, a little early, end of the sermon for Mother's Day, and everybody would be happy. God is good. Miracles happen. God rewards faithfulness. Keep trusting. Keep serving. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Those are all key points if we just stop the story right here. God is good. We say sometimes God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Right now, right here, right there, it looks awesome. However, let's keep going in the story. Verse 18. One day when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, My head hurts. My head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. So the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and left him there. God is good. 
Miracles happen all the time. All the time, God is good. Miracles happen. God rewards faithfulness. Are those things still true? Up until verse 18, we could see this woman was a woman of faith. We could see that she was content. We could see that she was hospitable. She was thinking of others. She recognized a man of God. You know, we have the story of Elisha with his name and knowing and his history and everything. Back then, it wasn't so clear, but in fact, she had recognized that he was a man of God. So there was some discernment there. But God was about to form her character and to mold her and to demonstrate what this, who this mother was in a way that would never have been shown if the story had ended at verse 17. Now she is in a crisis. All hope appears lost. She didn't even ask for this child. So God got her hopes up, gave her all this joy, and then crushed her in pain? How can God be a loving God? How could he let this happen? And we know the questions that come. Where did I fail? How could I have done things differently? That fear that God has failed me. And that temptation. Do I turn from God or do I turn towards him in my crisis? I knew a man whose wife, when they were a young family with three children, she slipped and fell on the concrete around a swimming pool, hit her head, and died. Shock and amazement and just totally, totally, totally one of those unexpected things. And I remember him saying to me, Dave, there's a big part of me that wants to turn away from God in anger. But he said, I don't want to become the man that I would be if I did that. And he and I have, have we, we wrestled with that. And he actually knew my brother, Mark, uh, more than me. And Mark and I wrestled with this as to what that choice in these moments of crisis that... Do we turn away or do we turn towards? We know that the huge blessing, God understands us and he knows, he knows, he, he gets us. He remembers that we're dust. But he works by his spirit in us to have us turn towards him in these times of crisis. She sends a message to her husband. Send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. 
Why go today, he asked. It's neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath. It's easy to pick on dads. Most of us have been picked on as dads, and we deserve a lot of what we get. This dad, I think he's just so typical. He struggles to, he's occupied with his work, we noticed earlier on, and so he just has a servant take the child to his mother when he's sick. I love it, by the way, here at RBC, when I see involved dads. When I see dads that aren't just handing it off. I like to test dads sometimes and say, when you're looking after one of your children, do you call it babysitting? That's a test. Because if you do, then you're not really grasping your role as a dad. We are, we are, when we get involved, there's a huge blessing that comes. So just, I'm just mentioning that, and we've got great examples here. Um, I love to see Rudy with his, uh, with his boys, um, Emmanuel, uh, Chris, Uberson. Uh, had a fun time not too long ago where Uberson texts me to tell me he's going to be late for an elders meeting and he's feeling bad because the boys needed help with homework or they weren't in bed yet. I can't remember, but there was something where he needed to be there with his boys and he was going to be late for elders meeting. Of course, we all chewed him out, right, for being late? It was a great example to us as fellow elders that he was making his family a priority. And uh, just say, this dad, he's kind of just pretty average, I think, like one of us. So he tries to argue with his wife, what's, you know, why, what's going on? He, I don't know, it seems like he just hasn't, doesn't get it here. Sometimes, any of us have dads had our, or husbands, had our wives say to us, everything's fine? And you can tell by the tone that absolutely nothing is fine. This, this one didn't get it so well, and neither did Gehazi's, you'll see further on in the story. But he argues, she says, it'll be all right. Just like, it's fine, everything's fine. Where in fact, their child was dead upstairs in the room. She saddled the donkey, said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. That's verse 24. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband, and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything is fine. There you have it again. Husbands, just a little tip today. When they say everything is fine, it probably means nothing is good. Okay, so just, just say it. When she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. Then she said, Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I say, Don't deceive me and get my hopes up? You can feel now the doubt, the disappointment, the anger, the feeling of being deceived. She knows very clearly in her own mind, her recall is 100%. She knows she never asked for that child. God gave her that child as a blessing, and then he goes and takes the child away. You can feel it. You can sense it. Your story, your trial, your crisis will not be exactly the same as this. 
Neither is mine. Each of us has a unique story and a unique journey. But we have, all of us that have been on the journey with God for a while, we have had these moments. We have had these times, these points in our lives where we get here. Elisha says to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. The boy's mother says, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. This woman has more discernment than the prophet. Another tip for husbands. Those of us that have wives that believe and follow the Lord Jesus, listen to them. On spiritual things, listen to them. Oftentimes, God speaks in a way with Katie that I'm not hearing it, I'm not getting it, and Katie's discerning something that I need to hear. This is exactly what was happening here. Elisha, the man of God himself, he was not hearing from the Lord. But this woman was, was figuring it out. She knew. He thought, Elisha thought he could delegate. He could send his servant. This was something where he had to go himself. And the woman knew this. She's amazing. And she, we don't even know in the story what she thought. Did she think that Elisha could really raise her son from the dead? Certainly there's no example of him doing that with anyone, any other child. I, I don't know that she had any example or sort of something that she could go on, but there was something there that was a deep trust in God in the middle of this crisis. Gehazi hurries on ahead, laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him, the child is still dead. The child is still dead. We have found in our journey, and I think many of you have, that God's timing is not our timing. And God takes a lot longer to do things sometimes, to decide when he is going to work and how he is going to work, than we would like. Here, even the man of God is not understanding the, exactly what God is doing and the, the, just how this is all going to work out. So this, this servant comes back with terrible news. The child is still dead. Can you picture the woman here and how, just be amazed at how her faith continues? Because now she has seen her child dead. She's laid him on that bed up in that little room now she's gone to see the man of God. The man of God sends his servant. The servant comes back and says, didn't work. He's still dead. That's a pretty hopeless scene. When Elisha arrives, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. Verse 33, he went in alone, shut the door behind him, and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hand on the child's hands. 
As he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once. Then he stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. I love that. Every story, moms here today, every story is unique. Grandmothers, every story with every one of your kids, you know it, is going to be a unique journey of faith. Anybody else anywhere in the Bible sneeze seven times when they came back to life? No. This is totally unique. Why does the Spirit of God have that in our Bible? Is there some significance in the seven times? I don't think so. It's, yes, it's the perfect number in the Bible, but I don't think that has anything to do with sneezing. I think it is simply that this was unique. This was this boy's journey and what God did in him as he raised him back to life. So with each of our children, those of us that have parented children, we know that each one is different. No two personalities, even those that have twins, no, even if they're identical twins, you know that the personalities are different, that, that there's a different journey for each of them. This particular boy needed this touch, he needed this experience, and in his particular case, he sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, call the child's mother, he said. When she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. The scriptures are given to us so that we might have hope. Do you remember that story, that that verse from Romans 15? Why does God tell us this story? Some of us as parents, many of you as moms today, you've got a child or a grandchild And you're saying there is no sign of life. And I've brought him to church. I've brought him to different things. I've brought him to events. I've brought her to this. I've brought her to that. I've tried this. I've tried that. And there is still no sign of life. And the encouragement of the scriptures to us today is God is still at work by his Holy Spirit. He has not given up, but his timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. What he does and how he does it is different than anything that we would naturally plan out ourselves. But I suggest to you that God has a day ahead for you as you pray for your child, your grandchild, and as you trust in the living God when you will be overwhelmed with gratitude as this woman was here. So keep trusting, keep praying. Know that God is at work by his Holy Spirit. Now i got to end with the story of the story. The story in the story. So just quickly, in 2 Kings chapter 8, a few, a few chapters later, it's now seven years later, and at least seven years later, this is what it says. 2 Kings chapter 8. And I'll just read it for you quickly here and just give you the wrap on telling the stories because I really am hoping today that each one of us that hangs out with a mom figure of any kind in our lives tells stories of how she has been a blessing to you. Listen to this story. Chapter 8, verse 1. Elisha had told the woman whose son he had brought back to life, take your family, move to some other place, for the Lord has called for a famine on Israel that will last for seven years. 
So the woman did as the man of God instructed. She took her family and settled in the land of the Philistines for seven years. After the famine ended, she returned to the land from the land of the Philistines, and she went to see the king about getting back her house and land. As she came in, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. The king had just said, Tell me some stories about the great things Elisha has done. And Gehazi was telling the king about the time Elisha had brought a boy back to life. At that very moment, the mother of the boy walked in to make her appeal to the king about her house and land. Look, my lord, the king, Gehazi explained, here is the woman now, and this is her son, the very one Elisha brought back to life. Is this true? The king asked her, and she told him the story. So he directed one of his officials to see that everything she had lost was restored to her, including the value of any crops that had been harvested during her absence. So brothers and sisters, why am I so confident in the Lord when I still got kids that are wandering from the Lord? I still got grandkids that have no interest in following the Lord today. Why? Because I have seen the before and after. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. What happened in this story? Here Gehazi is telling the story and then in walks the boy. In walks the mom. And he's able to say, here it is, a demonstration of God's power, a demonstration of God's goodness. And guess what? Moms, dads, brothers and sisters, at church today, you and I are each a demonstration of God's power. You ever think about that? The very fact that you have faith and that you follow Jesus in any way, if you do, you are a demonstration of the power of God. And if God has been able to get hold of your life and change your heart and turn you around and make you a follower of Jesus, then he can do the same that one that you are praying for and that you are burdened for. So moms, be encouraged today. This is an awesome example of a woman who had an incredible faith. And she just had an average husband. She had what looked like everything was going to be fine at the beginning. And then God put her through two huge tests. The big one was the loss of her child, but he also put her through the test of a famine. And this woman's faith stayed strong and she was able in the end to glorify God in front of the king with her son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the confidence that your word and your Holy Spirit gives to us. We thank you, Father, that we know you are at work. As you put us through the trials and difficulties of our lives, you are molding our character. You are making us more and more like Jesus. We know, Father, that you are at work in us as you are at work in those that we love and care for. And so, Father, we ask that we would be moldable, that we would be teachable. Father, we thank you for every mom here today. We thank you for every mom that follows you, that is a woman of faith. We ask, Father, that you would bless them today. We thank you for all those that play a 
mom role in someone's life. We thank you, Father, for the moms who are now in heaven, but that who taught us your things. And Father, we pray for every mom here that you would bless them and encourage them. We pray, Father, that if there are some moms here or under the sound of this message that do not yet know Jesus, that you would draw their hearts to you today. And Father, for every child, for every grandchild that a mom is praying for today, we pray and we count on you, Father, to hear and answer those prayers. We thank you. We love you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings, folks. Have a great Mother's Day.